Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's all about execution, and spring football scheme doesn't really matter that much. That's what Jimbo Fisher would have you believe. Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer with John Adams, and we've heard from, from Jimbo for the first time about his big offseason hire of Bobby Petrino. Jimbo having a press conference last week as spring practice underway at Texas A&M. And of course, the questions were going to come early and often about Bobby Petrino. And John, Jimbo just sort of waved him off. And (laughs) as as, as big a deal as people in our chair have been making of this higher than offseason of, well, hey, maybe Bobby P can be the guy to rejuvenate a stagnant Aggies offense. And maybe A&M will live up to or exceed expectations with all that talent you know, with a, a fresh approach to offense, Jimbo just kind of swatted it away last week and said, you know what? All that stuff about scheme doesn't matter. Yeah, maybe Petrino will call the plays, but it's about fundamentals and execution. Well, when Jimbo was calling the plays and calling them well and his offense was productive, it also was about uh, schemes. I find that really intriguing, uh, those comments. It's really hard to tell what coaches are trying to put forth, what the message they really, what they really mean, and what they want the message to be, and why they're saying what they're saying. But it sounds to me like Bobby Petrino, for a guy with all those millions in the bank, is feeling pretty insecure. And his offense took a lot of heat, understandably, last year. It looked like a Vanderbilt offense often enough, and. Uh, He's an offensive guy. He, you know, he he became well known as an offensive coordinator, a play caller before he became a head coach. So now the play caller in him is kind of is kind of sensitive. And they bring he brings in Bobby Petrino, but he makes it sound almost like, well, I could have I could have gotten anybody. Just put them in there, you know, as as long as you got the players and they execute, it doesn't matter what that guy up there is calling. And I wonder how that message was received by Bobby Petrino. Yeah, we've talked before about how this is two big egos trying to exist in, in the same space. And and my thought was maybe maybe Jimbo has been humbled enough to realize I need a little help here. What I've been doing isn't working. I've got a lot of talent, but you know, perhaps it is time to take more of a CEO approach and, and be a little more hands-off with the offense. Well, from the sounds of things, Jimbo maybe doesn't share that thinking. The, the first question in the press conference, of course, was going to be about Bobby Petrino and, and the offensive scheme. And and Jimbo, he didn't even let the reporter finish the question. He, he interrupted <laughs> and he said, quote, we're running our thing. We're going to be base fundamentals. We ain't getting in the scheme. We ain't getting into anything. That's what we're going to do. We're going to practice it. We're going to do it on a daily basis. How you execute the scheme, he says is what it's about. Mm. 
you know, and here I thought these, these coaches getting paid the millions were uh, supposed to be doing something a little more uh, schematically complex than maybe what you're running in the, in the local peewee league. But uh, Jimbo says no. He says, quote, a counter is a counter. A dig in a post is a dig in a post. And there's not a hill of beans a difference uh, as far as what goes into it. Everybody does the same thing. That was a direct quote from Jimbo Fisher. Everybody does the same thing. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think Josh Heupel's offense and the one they're running at West Point uh, are exactly the same. Uh, I understand that fundamentals and execution and having talent, Jimmy's and Joe's and all that stuff goes into it. But yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think schemes do have something to go into effect here or, or, or do, do play a role. And Texas A&M's looked pretty antiquated the past couple of seasons. Yeah, I don't think Jimbo delivered that speech when he was an offensive coordinator. <laughs> I think back in those guy- days, it would have been something like, you know, some guys just have a knack for when to call what, you know, and, and they can call it and make it work. Doesn't matter who's running out there to catch the pass or who's throwing it. But if you call the right play, if you scheme it right, it'll be successful. I just wonder how Bobby Petroid, Bobby Petrino was thinking when he heard that. It's almost like Jimbo, he should be worried about getting much better offensively after an awful season. Instead, it's almost as though, well, I know we're going to be better, but I don't want Bobby Petrino to get all the credit. And I think that's a that's a very possible storyline. As the team gets better, well, what's different? <laughs> Guy calling the plays is different. And I think Bobby put I, I think Jimbo, his ego's getting in the way. And uh he's uh He's got a, I know he's got one of the great uh, golden parachutes out there waiting on him. But if this thing doesn't work, I think no matter how much it takes, Texas A&M is getting a new football coach. Maybe it'll hire Bobby Petrino. <laughs> That's a good point, though, John, about kind of on the front end, setting the expectation that, hey, if the Aggies are better this year, let's let's pump the brakes on crediting Bobby Petrino, shower <laughs> some of that praise on on Jimbo Fisher there. He's playing chess, not checkers. The other thing I thought about is if this fails, Jimbo's planting the seed, planting the idea that it's not on the coaches. It's not on the scheme. It's not on the play calling. It's the failure of the players. They're the ones that have to execute, which is just a classic pass the buck situation. We see coaches do that all the time. Executes one of their favorite words, you know, after a loss is, well, we have to execute better. Well, maybe you have to coach better, too, and execution is is also a product of of coaching, uh, right? That's that's why you have practice three hours a day in in the spring is is to uh, learn that execution, uh, which is to a certain degree Jimbo's point. There is is got to got to execute the plan. It's not just about the plan, uh, but I do think he's sort of shifting the onus away from the coaches and onto the players. And when it comes to players. And Texas A&M returns more starters than anybody in this conference. They're coming off a five and seven season. It was a young team, team plagued by injuries. Um, a lot of guys back. They may have found their quarterback in Connor Wigman at the end of last season. I, I think that's, you know, for all the talk about Petrino, to me, one of the bigger storylines, maybe the biggest storyline is, is Connor Wigman really the guy? 
Now, I don't care who you have calling plays and coordinating. Um, you need to have a, a competent, skilled quarterback at the controls. And you know, he looked good at times. He looked good the, the final time we saw him in that win against LSU. But then you go back a couple weeks earlier and was not very good in a loss to Auburn. So I think my jury's still sort of out on Connor Wigman as, as the jury is out on just how well this uh, Jimbo Fisher, Bobby Petrino marriage is going to work. Yeah, I agree, Blake. And, and I think, yeah, you keep mentioning, we keep talking about execution. One of my favorite coaching lines after the most awful failures, the most dreadful beatings coaches will say, well, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, we had eight, nine, even 10 guys sometimes doing the right thing on a play, but there'd be one breakdown. So again, that takes the onus off coaches and puts it on those two or three uh, losers out there who didn't do the right thing. But see, it's like, yeah, we coach these guys and the majority of them got it and they're doing well, but two or three guys just couldn't execute. So this is, uh, I just see this as a really combustible situation at Texas A&M. There's, I think they're going to be better. I think we agree on that, that they have the potential to be the most improved team in the league. But there's also, there's going to be an undercurrent. And, and on that first bad Saturday, on the first, on the fir- the first time when the execution isn't what it needs to be, who will take the blame for that? Um, Bobby Petrino knows how to say goodbye. He doesn't waste time doing it. He could, you know, he could be out the, out of there in a heartbeat if he doesn't like the way things are going. When I look at A&M's schedule, they, they open up against New Mexico. They have a week three game against Louisiana Monroe. You don't want to completely pencil those in because this team lost to App State last year, but still, you know, not much to see there. Week two is at Miami. That's pretty interesting. But the one that really has my attention is a week four home game against Auburn. Now, Auburn, uh, for the most part last season, was more or less a disaster, particularly uh, on offense, particularly at quarterback. But Auburn, in their shining moment, uh, after they'd fired Brian Harson and, and handed the reins to interim coach Cadillac Williams, Auburn beat Texas A&M. And it was really among many of the low moments for the Aggies. Ranks right up there with the lowest in addition to uh, that loss to, to Appalachian State on their, their home field. And now Auburn you know, has a new coach, Hugh Freeze. But still, uh, expectations are not soaring, I don't think, for from the outside looking in for Auburn. I know expectations are always high on the planes. But I think a lot of reasonable people think, Hugh Freeze is going to need a year maybe to get that rolling. I just think that would be a really, really tough, bad look for Jimbo and and tough to overcome as he's trying to write this thing if if they were to lose, you know, on their home field in week four against Auburn and their first year coach, Hugh Freeze. Oh, I agree. And right you can and I don't think it will happen, but if it did, you can almost it's easy to envision the reaction from the Texas A&M fan base 
uh, well, Auburn goes out and gets him a coach. Doesn't pay him nearly as much as we paid Jimbo. Offensive-minded guy. Supposed to be good with quarterbacks, and what does he do? He flips the team just like that and wins a game. Yeah, Hugh Freeze is known for having a pretty good scheme, too. Yeah. So, yeah, so anybody – I think there might be some people that follow those quotes away uh, from Jim Ball. Oh, schemes don't matter. Well, if uh, – <laughs> If uh, if uh, Auburn goes a length of the field in a cup in the last two minutes, and there's some coverage breakdowns in the Aggie secondary, and there's a an Auburn wide receiver celebrating in the end zone, I think schemes will matter, and and that's a good point. And when you mention Hugh Freeze, it's not it's not just about a uh, and M situation. It's kind of it, a lot of other schools. It's going to be like that when you bring in a new coach in this league, and he does good right away, like Josh Heupel did at Tennessee. The reaction elsewhere is, well, he didn't take any time. There was no rebuilding. He once took over a horrible program under NCA scrutiny, three and seven goes seven and six, and then he's got the next year, he's got Tennessee in the top 10. So people look at that and say, and we're in year three or year four, and you're still talking about building your culture? Uh-uh. That just doesn't work with fans. Hugh, Hugh Freeze could do a lot of damage to his fellow coaches this year. Yeah, I agree, and and I think Brian Kelly joins that list of, of Josh Heupel you mentioned now. Sure. Brian Kelly obviously inherited some talent at LSU, but I mean, the last time we saw LSU in its final season under Ed Ogeron, I and mean, they were in the toilet uh, for all the for all the talent they had. Um, they didn't look like a good team. Brian Kelly came in, and as you said, laying all all the cliches, laying the foundation, installing your culture. Yeah, he had to do that, but I think he showed you can do that in six months in the off season and then be ready to compete when the games start and you're not still laying the, laying the <laughs> groundwork there, uh, pouring the concrete. No, you're, you're ready to go out and win games and, and using the transfer portal, uh, obviously can help you. We saw certainly Brian Kelly do that at LSU. He continues to use the transfer portal to his benefit, but, but, uh, you know, that started with the addition of, of Jaden Daniels a year ago. And I, when I think about Brian Kelly, uh, it brings me back to Hugh Freeze, John, because, you know, we see how a coach can get a look at their quarterback situation, um, you know, what they inherit, and immediately know, I need to upgrade this. You know, we're, we're fine with, with some of these guys in the program. They can stick around and compete, but we need to insert a better option. And I think, you know, this year, Auburn falls into that category. We heard from from Hugh Freeze early on in spring practice, uh, assessing his quarterbacks. He said, quote, truthfully, I wish we were further along. He also added that his quarterbacks and wide receivers have, quote, a long way to go. Now, that could be Hugh Freeze trying to downplay expectations entering his first season. That's never a bad move. If It's hard to do. And I think in this day and age, it's hard to downplay expectations. But if you can do it, 
you know, why not make you look better? When you go out and go eight and four, you think, well, I inherited a mess and look, we're, we're eight and four. But I also think it probably speaks to the truth of the matter a little bit. I mean, when we saw Auburn last year, whether it was TJ Finley or Robbie Ashford out there, left a lot to be desired at quarterback. Uh, same thing with the wide receivers. Didn't see a, a ton of playmakers, I think, at wide receivers. So I do think, you know, there, there may have been multiple reasons for Hugh saying what he did, but I, I think the, the simplest answer is probably that's, that's the truth. Auburn needs to get better at quarterback and wide receiver. And although they've upgraded several areas of their roster at the transfer portal, um, quarterback remains the one they haven't really addressed. And the portal reopens on April 15th. I question the caliber of quarterback that's going to be available in this second go around here of, of transfers, but I think Auburn needs to be first aligned and, and, and see what's there for the taking. Yeah, I agree, but I think it's, um, it's kind of a twofold message and you hit on both of them. Uh, we're not as good as we need to be a quarterback and everybody knows how important quarterback quarterbacking has never been so as so important as as now in college football and Hugh Freeze uh, is saying yeah we aren't good enough at that position but you're lowering expectations and you're also laying the foundation for well I'll make them better but if he can't if he doesn't think he can make them better if uh, if the quarterback play really is underwhelming, uh, he needs to find a guy, and, and maybe you know maybe he can. He's got a great reputation with quarterbacks, and you, I, I think it's it's hard to find one at this at this stage of the game, but uh, some of these quarterback competitions, depending on how they're playing out in the spring. Uh, teams that have a couple of good guys and it's very much up in the air who will be the guy. The guy that the guys that know best are the guys competing. And, and if you feel like you're you're about to lose this competition, you hit the ejection button and you go somewhere else. So I won't rule out the possibility of him finding a competent quarterback. I still think his best hope is that Robbie Ashford continues to improve uh he's improved some not nearly enough obviously but man you you go into a season now without a, a top-notch quarterback you're really you're really behind the crowd and and you've got an uphill battle yeah i think i'm more intrigued by ashford to versus finley and I, I probably the biggest reason for that is we've seen finley now at two different schools across three seasons you know, he's coming off of, of an injury that sidelined him in the second half of, of last year. Um, he, he got some time at LSU before that, but was not able to retain the job. To me, TJ Finley is, is a really competent backup quarterback that any SEC team would be thankful to have as their QB2. But as TJ Finley goes into year four, you know, on his second SEC school, he's on his, what, third coach now. I just think, you know, expecting him to to suddenly, um, you know, to turn into a, a guy who can put a lot of fear in SEC defenses, I don't necessarily have high hopes for that, particularly with the limited weapons around him. I think if you're going to be operating in a system 
or maybe you don't have as many wide receiver threats as you'd like, I think you'd rather have a, a true running threat like you have in Robbie Ashford and hope you can grow him as a passer, but you at least know he can attack the defense in multiple ways. But I do think it comes back to the transfer. And, and, and although you know I was skeptical of the caliber of quarterback that's going to be available in the portal this second window, I do think if you're looking at potential landing spots in the SEC, I think Auburn is going to be the most appealing destination when the portal reopens that. And, and I don't say that because I think you know Auburn's going to a New Year's Six Bowl or, or whatever, um, but I think a lot of transfers, particularly in this, this next window, are going to be looking at a couple things. Number one, can I go in and win the starting job? Because they're coming in behind the eight ball a little bit. They won't have the benefit of having had spring practice to connect with their new coaching staff and their new team. Um, so you need to come into a situation where the starting quarterback is unsettled. And I'm not saying where the coaches say it's unsettled, even though we all know who the starter is, uh, where it's truly unsettled. And I think Auburn fits the bill there. And I think you also want to go play for someone who has, uh, who has a reputation for developing QBs, and Hugh Freeze has that. So I think in this, this next go-around for transfers, I do think Auburn, um, though it may be hard to find a frontline starter, in this April 15th transfer portal window that, that will begin then, uh, I do think they, they might be the most appealing landing spot. Would you, would you agree, or is there somewhere else in the SEC that you think would, would kind of rival them as guys looking at, at that school as, as a potential landing destination? No, I, right off the top of my head, yeah, I would think it would be Auburn. I can't think of, uh, I can't think of anybody else. Um, Another I mean, Florida, fact, Florida needs a new start. Well, well I shouldn't yeah. say they, they need. They have, they have Graham Mertz, the, the the Wisconsin transfer. I would think, you know, Florida's still unsettled, but they already brought in their transfer. You know, so I think if you're if you're a portal guy in this window, you think, well, Billy Napier's first pick, he's already got him. He got Graham Mertz there, so I think Florida would rank behind Auburn, right? And and Alabama's unsettled, but there's a lot of bodies in that room. I don't know that you want to come in. Uh, cold on in June and and try to win that that job. Yeah, Blake, uh, we might have overlooked something when we're talking about uh, the message that Hugh Freeze was conveying. Maybe he was thinking about a different audience with his less than stellar assessment of his quarterback play. Maybe he was thinking about the boosters in the NIL. Like we aren't good enough here. We aren't good enough at this position. How are we going to get somebody else uh, this late in the game? Well, how do you get them? You pay them. So maybe this is a message to his uh, his collective to say, and you got a desperate fan base there. <laughs> so if the coach is saying we need a quarterback and some of those boosters get together, well, let's just go buy one. We'll go find us a starter somewhere else you know, maybe middle of the road program who's pretty good and say, okay, you can stay there. You can come here and play for, uh, play for big bucks. Maybe that's what uh, Hugh Freeze had in mind. Moving along elsewhere in, in spring practice, John, I, I thought some, some of Lane Kiffin's comments jumped out to me early at spring practice and, and made me think that 
we, we spend so much time focusing on the quarterbacks and what Ole Miss has done through the transfer portal. And, you know, maybe we can read too much into a, a coach's comments, but Lane Kiffin seemed pretty comfortable when he was talking about his quarterbacks early on this spring. He said they've all looked good, which is not an earth-shattering assessment, but I, I think the reality is he knows he has options there. Whether Jackson Dart hangs on to the job, um, whether Spencer Sanders, the former starter at Oklahoma State, you know, maybe he wrestles it away. To me, though, when you hear Lane talk, he talks, you know, he's touched several times on the new, the new personnel coaching Ole Miss's defense. They brought in Pete Golding, the former defensive coordinator under Nick Saban in Alabama. Uh, the new pieces on defense. They brought in several transfers there, including Monty Montgomery, the linebacker from Louisville, who will be kind of a a central figure in that unit. We think about the different linebackers Lane has brought in the last couple of years. He had Chance Campbell, the Maryland linebacker, who came in for a year and played really well. Then he brought in Troy Brown, the Central Michigan linebacker. Well, now it's Monty Montgomery's turn from Louisville. And they've shifted away to a new scheme, Lane Kiffin is not exactly detailed totally what that'll look like, but we know in the past Pete Golding in Alabama has run some version of a of a 4-2-5, a 3-4, or a 3-3-5. One thing he hasn't done is that 3-2-6 scheme that Ole Miss has done in the past. So I, I'm wondering what what you've made of, of Lane's comments, and and do you share my thinking that for all the talk about what Ole Miss has done to improve its quarterback depth and competition in the offseason, that maybe what's going on on defense really holds the ticket for what the Rebels' ceiling could be this year. Yeah, I guess we think of the high mark that uh, Lane Kiffin had at Ole Miss, and that was with a great quarterback, uh, Matt Corral. So I understand the emphasis on quarterbacks. Uh, because Lane has a great history with developing quarterbacks, uh, calling plays, and so he can bring out the best in a really good quarterback. But at least we know that Ole Miss's quarterbacks won't be at the bottom of the SEC. One of those guys, one guy has to win the job, and it wasn't as though Jackson Dart was horrible last year. He showed some talent, made some highlight plays. He made some bad plays, too. He was inconsistent. Uh, Spencer Sanders has a great, had a really good track record at Oklahoma State, and uh, so Walker Howard was highly sought after when LSU signed him out of high school. So Ole Miss will be okay at quarterback. I mean, it may not be Matt Corral good, but it's going to be okay. And I think you're right to to stress that it, it's all these other pieces. Uh, you know, what will the receiving core be like? You've got a great running back, uh, so the offensive line should be okay. So then you turn to the defense, and he's been able to cobble together decent defenses through the transfer portal. Can he keep doing that? Maybe so. Uh, but that's the question you have going with Ole Miss is, can they stop people? And we can't really answer that until we see them on the see the Rebels on the field. If you're an Ole Miss fan, would you be encouraged by the hiring of of Pete Golding? Because, you know, one man's cast off is is another man's savior, right? I mean, I think Alabama fans were not sad to see Pete Golding go and to get a fresh start there. 
um, with with the tied defense. But at Alabama, you're living up to the standard, uh, the really unmatchable standard in many ways, I think, that was set for many, many years by Kirby Smart uh, as Nick Saban's defensive coordinator. And then even when Jeremy Pruitt was running that defense, Alabama, you know, ranked at, at the top of the nation. And of course, you have um, the greatest defensive mind, at least until Kirby Smart came along, I suppose, as as a, as your head coach in Nick Saban. So you're living up to that standard. That can be a tough environment, I think, uh, to work in and, and to live up to. But, you know, Ole Miss is looking for improvement on that side of the ball. And they have someone who has now several years of experience under Nick Saban coming in to run their defense. So how excited should Ole Miss fans be by the arrival of Pete Golding? Or are you more thinking, well, how good can he be? Because we've seen Kirby Smart and Jeremy Pruitt lead a number one ranked Alabama defense. And although Alabama's defense has been good the past few years, it's not been Alabama good while it was operating under Pete Golding. I think the reaction will be very mixed because you can pretty much divide any fan base into optimist and pessimist. The optimist will say, we just got Alabama's defensive coordinator. That, that, that'll turn things around. Uh, Alabama may be the number one program in college football, uh, before at least before Georgia won the last two national championships. But so you could, you could, if you're an optimist, that gives you something to build on. Well, Nick Saban's not going to hire a bad defensive coordinator. And maybe Alabama's defensive talent wasn't at the same level it was when it had its championship teams. But the other half of the fan base is going to say, you know, we're trying to move up here in the West. We're try- we've got a good offense. We've got a good offensive coach. We can't move up by hiring somebody's uh, cast off. We, we this guy didn't Alabama didn't want to keep this guy, so we're going to take him. So, I think overall it's going to be less than excitement about uh, that hire. John, in, in our our closing minutes here, we've spent uh, a considerable amount of time the past few episodes touching on basketball. So before we go, at least want to acknowledge that, uh, well, the SEC flopped in the end in, in the NCAA tournament. All, all started well. They matched their conference record with with eight qualifiers. Uh, their teams went six and two in their opening games. Uh, for Mississippi State, that was a, a first four game. For everybody else, that was a first-round game. So six and two out of the gates. They put three teams in the Sweet 16, and then one by one, they dropped. And, of course, the biggie was number one overall seed, Alabama, who um, you know is so reliant on the three-pointer and, and the new-age analytics. Well, um, they, they lost amid a barrage of, of bricks from the perimeter against San Diego State, and and that's that. And it'll now be 10 NCAA tournaments in a row without an SEC team winning the national championship. You have to go back to Kentucky in 2012 as the last SEC team to have won it. I think maybe even more uh, glaring than that, John, than, than the titles is the fact that it's now been three tournaments in a row where the SEC has not produced a Final Four team. Um you know, it's not great to go t- 10 tournaments in a row uh, without having a national champion, but you go three in a row, you don't put one in the final four. We've talked about this is a better conference, I think, in terms of depth 
Um, there's not as many pushovers in this conference. We've seen that by the number of teams that are qualifying for the tournament, but they don't have the teams going on deep runs. I think the solution starts with Kentucky. John, we, we can talk about all these programs that have hired pretty good coaches that are getting better. We talked a lot about Eric Musselman last week and what he's been able to do at Arkansas, three straight sweet 16s for Arkansas. Um, Nate Oates has made Alabama basketball relevant. Bruce Pearl's done the same thing at Auburn. Rick Barnes is a guarantee to get you in the tournament every year at Tennessee. But I, I think if the SEC you know, really is going to be serious about ending this this national championship drought in men's basketball. It's got to start with your one school that is undeniably, undebatably a basketball school. You know, we can talk about basketball having heightened relevance at places like Arkansas, Tennessee, and a few others, but Kentucky's a basketball school. You know, Mark Stoops may not like to hear that, but Kentucky's a basketball school, and it's not living up to its standards, its history, and John Calipari's not living up to his contract. Um, they're not moving on from him. He's got a huge buyout. He's got the number one ranked recruiting class coming in. But it, for all the things we can discuss of how can the SEC produce a champion, to me, it starts with Kentucky. There, there's your solution. You got to have your big dog in hoops performing up to its name. Yeah, I would like be. I will say, though, with the thing that's interesting about SEC f- football. When it went all as champion, well, it's on another winning streak now, but what was it, uh, seven consecutive national titles. It wasn't just the marquee program. It wasn't just Alabama and Georgia. When you had Alabama and LSU and Florida, uh, Auburn, all those different teams. But we look at SEC basketball, and really, when you think about it, I, I wonder how fans view it within the conference because some fans pull for all sec teams and they may they hate their rivals sure but they usually want the the conference to do well and i think they probably look down on basketball because you said well when was the last time they won a won a national championship it's been 10 years but you look what the sec's won what three straight in football uh three straight in baseball i mean it's a more dominant in baseball than it is anything. And fans of those sports don't, they don't get all excited. Oh man, we look, we had uh, two teams make the college football playoff or we had uh, nine or 10 teams make the baseball tournament, NCAA tournament. No, they, they look at it as how did you finish? And the basketball teams finished outside the elite eight. Uh, so it's as though the SEC has made progress in basketball. I think it's hired really good coaches, but it's still, you know, it's it's still below that that top level. And Kentucky, it's been a while with Kentucky. It's been a while against John Calipari. Can does he have a champ one more championship act in him? I don't know. Uh, but I, I think you need Kentucky. I agree with you. You need to, Kentucky to be good. And when I thought Kentucky as a sixth seed, and maybe it's because of the image, I just I always have that thought that, well, maybe Kentucky will put it together in the tournament. And it was it, playing Kansas State, and it couldn't quite put it together. I mean, I thought that was a, a winnable game. And if it advanced, maybe it could go all the way to the Final Four. But you have that potential with Kentucky, 
but time and time again, we aren't seeing the potential realized. Yeah, it's actually been four in a row in, in football with LSU, Alabama, and then the, the Georgia yeah, repeat. I'm, four in a row, I'm but three teams. Yeah, the repeat. So four straight in football and at least three in baseball. Yeah, and, and, and although other teams have, have done it in football, you I mean, Auburn, Florida, LSU, Georgia, you've also had Alabama as the consistent. They've won six titles under Nick Saban, you know, throughout the BCS and now the college football playoff eras, you could count on Alabama, you know, your your richest tradition football program in a, in a tradition-rich conference. I mean, Alabama is, is out front, whether other fans want to hear that or not, that's true. Um, they've been performing year in, year out, like the big dog they are. Now, we've seen other programs do that as well. From this conference and, and Georgia is at the top of the mountain now. They're the best program in, in college football at this moment. That's that's not up for debate. But Alabama has been the consistent. And for a while, we saw that from Kentucky basketball. There was a there was a four-year stretch there, uh, or excuse me, a five-year stretch where Kentucky went to four final fours and they won that national championship in 2000. 12, they had two teams, the 2012 team and the 2015 team, win 38 games in a season. And they were doing it, number one, John Calipari had mastered the one-and-done era. Other coaches eventually caught up, but during that time, uh, 10-plus years ago, he was at the forefront of of one-and-done. He was doing it better than anybody else. And they were stockpiling talent in a very Alabama football-like way. Like, it was no mystery why Kentucky was was so good every year. All you had to do was look at the, the NBA draft the following spring, and you'd see four or five Wildcats selected in the first 20 picks in the draft, much like at Alabama. It's, a, it's an annual coronation uh, of their talent every year when we get to the, the NFL draft. Others have caught up to the one-and-done approach. And I think the transfer portal is a great equalizer. You mentioned the loss to Kansas State. Well, the top two talents on Kansas State, Marquise Noel and Keontae Johnson, are both veterans, transfers, and those programs that maybe couldn't get the McDonald's All-Americans before. Well, in basketball, maybe you don't need a bunch of McDonald's All-Americans. If you can go into the portal and get three or four veteran proven guys um, that, that can make you pretty dangerous. And I think that's been an equalizer in basketball, maybe even more so than football. Although in football, I think transfers help level the playing field as well. Yeah. I think it's important to realize though, that SEC basketball, yes, it's gotten better. It's hiring better coaches. Um, it's playing tougher schedule, distinguishing itself in non-conference games. Um, it's it seems to be investing more in the sport um but it's still it, it you're not getting the results it's like with uh whereas with football you rank high in recruiting uh you you hire really good coaches but then it pays off in the playoff and we're seeing that we just aren't seeing that with basketball um and so I tell you what, if it doesn't change at Kentucky fans, I don't know what fans are going to do, but you're going to have a, it's almost like a Jimbo Fisher situation developing there in terms of a football analogy. 
When you look at the Final Four this year, John, there's uh, nobody seeded better than a than a four seed in the Final Four. Uh, a couple of big brands, UConn's in the Final Four, and and Miami uh, as a five seed using NIL to the, their advantages in the final four. But then you also have San Diego state and, and the ultimate Cinderella uh, Florida Atlantic as, as a nine seed without much pedigree are in the final four. And that can happen in the big dance. We've seen this before, whether it be VCU or George Mason, um, obviously well-known as an 11 seed made the final four. You go back to Villanova winning it as an eight seed in 1985 uh, Cinderella stories, Loyola Chicago, Cinderella stories can and do happen in college basketball. Do you think we'll see anything equivalent to this in the 12 team playoff equivalent to you? And I'm not saying winning the title because usually in the end, we don't see one of those nine, 10 or 11 seeds win the title in the NCAA tournament. In fact, eighth seeded Villanova in 85 still is the worst seeded team to win the whole thing. But in terms of like an FAU, a Cinderella story, maybe going on a run in a 12-team playoff, let's call it from the first round to maybe the final four of a 12-team playoff. That'd require them to win two games to spring back-to-back upsets. You think we could see that in college football, or is that very, very unlikely to happen to have a, a team go from first round as an underdog Cinderella, maybe a group of five, to the final four in a 12 team football playoff. I guess it could happen, but I, I think we're more apt to see one upset, but not, but not back to back. The thing with football, it's, it's the, it's a numbers game in football. You got an 85 man roster in basketball. You, you got 13 guys usually. Uh, and, and I think you can build a championship team a lot easier obviously in basketball and i really wonder blake uh boosters uh people involved in nil deals when they look at this final four might some of them be thinking you know we could invest our money in basketball and get more bang for our bucks than we can in football if san diego state florida atlantic can go to the final four who are we to say we can anywhere in America, no matter where you are, you could say we can build a final, we can finance a final four basketball program. I think that could be interesting going forward to see if people have that mindset that, you know, in football, yeah, we can get better, but it's kind of hard to finance an 85 man roster as opposed to a 13 one. We give, uh, what can you do with $13 million in uh, football? Yeah, I think but, that's particularly true for the group of five, John. I think you make a really yeah. good good point. If you're a group of five school um, that thinks, hey, we can punch above our, our weight a little bit. We're not some just speck on the on the map. We, uh, you know, we compete in, in one of these better group of five conferences, and we can go to a Final Four. I think you're right. It's easier to try to go up to pool your NIL money together and be really competitive as a collective and and trying to land four or five guys that are as good as any as any four or five guys collectively in the country versus saying uh yeah we're going to be able to pool our our collective together here and 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 have an 85 man football roster that compete with Georgia, Alabama and LSU. That I don't think that's happening, but 
So as you say, you need you need a a few guys get hot in a tournament, a few veterans, um, you know, a good coach, and and you can make a Final Four in basketball. Yeah, and as you pointed out, really the way to do it if you want to invest in IL money, forget these high school recruits, potential one and done guys. Look at potential transfers, guys that have already proved to be productive. Uh, pay them good money, bring them in, and let them have uh, one more go round and and have the motivation to. This could be your final four season. Uh, I think Kansas State uh, pretty much had plenty of transfers, uh, and, and that fueled its run uh, that fell just short. Uh, so yeah, I think that would be the way to go. I I just really think if you're you know, we talk about Miami and, and John Ruiz, the big booster there. He's spending all this money. Well, what did Miami do in football? But he got his women's basketball team to the Elite Eight, and and look what the men's team did. So he's saying, hey, why throw all that money at football? <laughs> so I think the lesson here, John, is if you're kind of new to college sports, your fan maybe just dabbling in this. Uh, maybe you root for pro sports, but you're like, I'm going to get into this college thing is really what you need to do is not be scouting coaches or, or your favorite mascots or team colors, figure out who's got the best boosters uh, that are willing to, to pump money into to improving their roster and, and uh, go, go with that team. Cause their, their future is bright. Huh? Yeah. That's the way to go these days. That's the modern era we're in. Well, it's still been uh, plenty exciting. Even even two years into uh, NIL, the sky has not fallen. The NCAA tournament uh, was exciting as ever, and we have a lot of fresh faces and uh, Cinderella stories in the final four. Whether Texas A and M uh, can meet such a fairy tale end, well, we'll see. How, how that relationship unfolds between Bobby Petrino and, and Jimbo Fisher. Maybe maybe Jimbo is just uh, trying to take all that credit, as you say, John. Keep, keep it away from Bobby P. The credit goes to the head man. That's the beauty of being the CEO is you can, you can collect the credit. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.